Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Everyone who's invested in real estate knows that the success of a deal can come down to property management. Today's guest, Peter Lohman, co-owner of RL Property Management, has built up a portfolio of almost 500 units in the Columbus, Ohio market by charging a flat fee to manage properties and providing proactive management and communication with landlords. So today we have with us a gentleman who is on the other side of the equation of the uh, real estate investing game. He is a property manager. He is the CEO at RL Property Management Company in Columbus, Ohio, a booming market. Peter Lohman, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks. I'm excited to be here, Roger. You know, we've had this thing, I think, set up for a month and a half or so. I have been excited to talk to you because, you know, I talk to mostly, gosh, I mean, better than 90% of the people I talk to are operators. And so people who 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 interact with property managers or do their own property management, or that's why I wanted to talk to you. And, and before, you know, I get into the, the brass tacks of asking you about your approach to property management. Um, I was just curious, I, I, you know, obviously you are in Columbus. Is that where you were from as a, as a kid or? No, I actually grew up on the East Coast. Uh, so I grew up in New Jersey and lived on, you know, my parents had a small family farm with horses and some sheep and stuff. So I grew up there, uh, was very active in Boy Scouts. And that's actually where I met my business partner. He and I, we now own a bunch of properties and a couple of businesses together. But Back then, uh, we just met at the local scout troop and we went on campouts. We actually both went through and became Eagle Scouts uh, together, stayed in touch through college. And then he went to Ohio State, graduated uh, a year ahead of me. He's a little older than me um, with a degree in civil engineering. Then I went to a small school in Western Pennsylvania called Geneva College, graduated with a degree in electrical engineering. And he helped me get a job at the engineering firm he was working for here in Columbus. So that's how I made my way out here. And almost right away, uh, he and I went into business together and bought our first rental property. This was 2008. Uh, and from there, it's just been a, a slow accumulation of uh, small rental properties. And then, you know, we can talk more about how I wound my way into operating a, a third party property management business as well. So, what's so interesting is that you know, among other things is that, uh, you know, New Jersey's the most populous, which you probably know this, but the most populous per cat, you know, state like per yep. square mile in the country, but yet you grew up on a farm. Now <laughs> we, we used to go to the, the Jersey shore, Cape May every summer. And so I, 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 I know that, you know, when you're in New Jersey, you're not bumping into people every, every three feet. It's not, you know, chock-a-block with people. Uh, but so where the central Southern Jersey, Central Jersey. Yeah. So we were about uh, kind of almost right in the middle of the state, an hour from the Jersey Shore. I spent plenty of time there uh, myself. So, yeah. But yeah, uh, uh, South and Central Jersey is mostly farmland. It's not, you know, you're right. It is the most populous uh, state by by density, but you wouldn't know it you know, once you get off the, the interstates. Yeah. It's just crowded up north. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of the master of the strange question. And it just a light bulb went off. So you guys were Eagle Scouts. I don't really know that much about 
scouting, but enough to know that there's real like ethos and integrity around, especially once you get to the level of Eagle Scout. So it's like when I hear that, I'm like, hey, I would trust this guy to to manage my property in a second. And so I guess... <laughs> Especially since that's where you met your partner. I mean, do you think that that experience in any way informed kind of your approach to commerce and just how you live your life? It definitely had an impact uh, and it still resonates. It's not something we advertise, although your reaction to it is making me wonder if we should start, you know, you know, founded by two Eagle Scouts. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a rigorous process uh, to go through and become Eagle Scout. And my dad was an Eagle Scout. My grandfather was an Eagle Scout. So I'm third generation, I guess. There's certainly like a, a camaraderie when you meet someone who's also an Eagle Scout. You sort of recognize that that was a serious achievement at a young age. It tells you, I think, a lot about who they are and, and how they handle themselves. You know they at least have a bare minimum skill set of ability to be a leader and make decisions and and sort of conduct themselves with a certain amount of integrity. Um, obviously, it's not universally true. But uh, when I think back on it, and there was a, a few experiences I had as a kid that my parents, you know, obviously helped me to have these experiences. And I think it was really important that they did. But But getting Eagle Scout was one of them where you, there's a certain confidence that comes with setting out to do something and then achieving it and knowing that it was difficult and other people are telling you, great job, well done. Not many people have achieved that. When you have that experience, it's not even so much exactly what it was that is important, but it's the fact that you did it and now you're going through life with this mindset of, well, of course I can do this and that. I'm an Eagle Scout or, well, I did this thing. So how hard can this other thing really be? Um, And I think that confidence still, you know, impacts me to this day when I come up with a business challenge or a real estate problem. And I'm like, well, how hard can this really be? I mean, I've done this, 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 and this, you know, as a kid and as a young adult. So I don't know if that makes sense, but there's like a certain confidence that it, that it instills in you. Oh, absolutely makes sense. What is the age you term out of, of uh, Eagle Scouts? So you, you wrap up with Boy Scouts once you turn 18. And I got my eagle. I think I was 16 when I got it. And so I stayed active for a few more years. Got it. You had referenced that, you know, with your partner, you have other businesses as well. And are those tangentially related to the property management company or are they unrelated? Uh, Somewhat related. So we've got really three things going on. We've got the rental properties that we own. He and I own, I don't know, a dozen units throughout uh, Columbus area here, mostly in the suburbs. Then we've got the property management company, RL Property Management. And then just recently, actually a couple of weeks ago, we purchased a small engineering consulting firm called Criterium Liskey here in uh, Columbus. And they provide building, uh, building inspections, structural inspections, anything you need to know about a property or a building. If you need an engineer of any kind, you call this company and we take care of it. So he and I are 50-50 in all these ventures, and he is off and running Criterium Liskey as CEO while I stay here and run the management company as CEO. And you say you just acquired that. You're saying, did I hear you right a few weeks ago? Yeah, we closed on it about two weeks ago. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations, man. Thanks. Yeah. Wow. So you, you guys are industrious and are kind of like uh, building a little empire there. Yep. We call it the RL Empire, <laughs> jokingly. <laughs> All right, 
Fair enough. And so how did you get into then property management? Was it through being principals yourself and owning your own property and seeing the need or? Exactly. Yeah. So those first few properties we bought, uh, we managed them ourselves, you know, pretty straightforward. Uh, We were both working full-time as engineers at the time. Uh, And then as we started to grow, we realized, hey, let's, you know, what would it look like to hire a property manager to handle these properties for us? So we looked around here in central Ohio and we really couldn't find a property manager that we liked. And everyone that we talked to seemed to hate their property manager. <laughs> so we said, well, hey, that sounds like an opportunity. Um, how hard can it be, you know, famous last words, to start and run a property management company that people actually like? So we looked into what it would take to to do that. And it turns out in Ohio, you need to get your real estate license and and some other things together. So we did all that and eventually... I quit my job in 2013 to start RL Property Management, uh, specifically to offer third-party property management services for clients that own investment property here in Central Ohio. So when we started, we had nothing, right? We only had the properties that we owned, and it was just me operating out of my apartment, no employees. And eventually, you know, we got our first client, then our second client, and it's just kind of been a slow but steady growth uh, with some periods of quick growth and then some periods of slow growth from there. And so today we manage about 300, I'm sorry, 490 units of rental property. It's a mixture of single family and multifamily. You need to update your website. It says 300, man. Oh man. Yeah. I do need to update that. Where where does it say that? (laughs) It's on your website, actually 350. And I think it's in the frequently asked questions. Okay. Good, good catch. Yeah. So, okay. So I, you know, if you get, if you get nothing else, Peter, out of this, that's what you get. Well, that's fair. There we go. You're right. I found it. All right. I got to get that updated. Well, that was fast. Uh, what, what percent are, are uh, single family versus uh, multi? It's about 40% single family. I think last time I checked. So out of the 490, you know, about, I don't know, 200 or so are single family and the rest are like duplexes, threeplexes, fourplexes, stuff like that. And do you ever track or do you have a sense of what's more profitable for you, single family or duplexes, triplexes? That's a great question. I think they're all fairly close. Uh, We charge a flat rate management fee per unit and we give discounts for volume. So the more units you have under management with us, the cheaper it gets. I think the apartments, you know, the multifamily is probably a little bit more profitable because there's some economies of scale uh, that come from having multiple units in the same location and also having multiple units with the same owner. So you got to imagine here, we've got about 200 different clients that own these 490 units. And each one of those clients is you know, a customer service burden, basically, uh, if you put kind of the cynical take on it. And so if you've got a client who has 10 units, you would generally prefer that to a client who has one unit just because you have only 10% the sort of client facing communication and, and customer support needs. Now there's a, there's a danger to that as well. If you go too far the other way and say we had one client who had 200 units with us, now I'd actually be more worried about that because now you're almost like working for them because they have they have the leverage in that relationship. So we try to be careful about that as well. Yeah, and if they decide they don't like you one day and fire you, it's a it's a bad day. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I would imagine, you know, what it takes to be a good property manager is just to be super, super proactive in just being great at communication. And it's it's the kind of business I would imagine where people are always going to be 
pissed off. And, you know, it's kind of like inevitably you, it's a kind of business you only hear from people and you only have to communicate with people when something's not right. Unless you're, unless you just leased up a new place and you can say, Hey, the place is leased and we, yeah. got but by and large, you know, other than that, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's just a lot of bad news. And when everything's going right, you know, there's no need to be any communication. So I would imagine to be really good at it is just to be super, super proactive about dealing with tenants. So, so stuff doesn't come up. Owners don't find out about stuff and just being like really, really good at communication so people can just be comfortable that even though they're not necessarily getting the news they want, that you guys are doing the best job that can possibly be done and that so you have yeah. trust and rapport. Your your intuition is exactly correct here. And you're right. Property managers, you know, no one, neither tenant nor client is really calling up a property manager to say, hey, great job. Really like how you're doing things. Just want to call and say thanks. <laughs> um, you know, it's not like, you know, uh, shipping someone cupcakes or something where you've got really just delighted customers every day. So yeah, and the communication is really important. That's something we've learned kind of the hard way. Um, my business partner and I being engineers are very systems and process oriented. And so in the early days, we felt like, well, as long as we're doing everything right, there really should be no need for communication. In fact, communication only slows us down. Uh, and prevents us from doing the very thing that clients have hired us to do, which is to manage their property. So we defaulted toward low or no communication unless it was absolutely necessary. And what we learned is that clients do not like that, especially in the beginning. They want to hear from you, even on something you feel like it's routine, like a tenant paid paid rent late. You're like, okay, well, we've got hundreds of tenants, half of them pay late. How, like That doesn't even rise to the level of, you know, any sort of importance. But it turns out clients really like to know what's going on. And so over time, the tendency has been toward more and more communication with clients within reason. I mean, we can't just, you know, we can't give everyone a daily update that just we wouldn't be able to operate whatsoever. But uh, what we've learned is around certain key events like move-ins, move-outs, evictions, turnovers, large expenses, clients want to hear from us. And so we provide that. Another thing that we've learned is Customer, you know, people don't like surprises. And you hear that a lot in business. As a fiduciary, which basically means someone has entrusted us to act on their behalf and make decisions for them regarding their property, uh, which in many cases is their largest asset and they're counting on it for retirement and everything else. It's a really, really big deal. You know, this isn't like taking someone's dog for a walk or something. This is like, you're managing my largest asset for years at a time and your decisions can have a material asset on my net worth as an individual. You know, whether or not we rent to this person, whether whether or not we hire this contractor who does a good job or a bad job, these, these things can have long lasting implications. And so because of that, you just, you have to take a much more rigorous and serious approach in how you deal with communication and accounting and process and systems. So getting back to the no surprises thing, what people really don't like is to find out that you knew something and didn't tell them, right? I really struggled with this no surprises thing when someone first told me that. I'm like, well, what do you mean no surprises? Because whenever I tell them, it's going to be a surprise. So what does it matter if I tell them today or tomorrow or next week? It's still going to be a surprise when I tell them. It's not like I can like tell them without telling them and then it's not a surprise. But what it actually, what, if you really unpack that statement, what they're saying there is, 
I don't want to know that you knew something and didn't tell me. I want to know when you know if it's important. So as soon as you find out, please let me know. Even if there's nothing they can do or it doesn't change the outcome, people just want to feel informed. And so that has, you know, we've kind of learned that and, and we've incorporated what we've learned there into how we how we communicate. And, and, you know, a lot of the client communication is baked right into our processes now. Yeah, makes makes a lot of sense. And, and the other thing is, I think it's just very human tendency. And it depends on the person, obviously. But I think with more type A people, which, you know, the people that own more property are probably going to be more likely to be type A, right? Because they're higher achievers. I think there's a real human tendency. And I know I'm totally guilty of this, that if I don't hear from you, I assume you're not doing anything, <laughs> which is wrong. Uh, but, but, and so therefore that's where the communication comes in. It's just like, okay, I know they've got it. You know, they've got my back. And uh, so obviously you figured that out. So, so you're growing clearly. You're, you're, for all intents and purposes, you're 500 units, which is absolutely fantastic. I guess my question is this, because, you know, if, if you've got 200 clients and, in, in, you know, 500 units, as you described, it's a lot of, you know, it's 40% single families, you know, duplex, triplex, quads, what have you. Have you tried to get into, you know, the sub hundred where, you know, the property is not big enough to have on site. So maybe 30, 40, 50 unit, those kind of uh, that size and scope of buildings. Absolutely. Yeah. We actually love the, those like medium, small to medium sized multifamily properties that like 20 to 60 unit range. Uh, we, we do manage those properties. We've managed quite a few of them in the past and we really like them because it turns out you can manage them in a very similar way to how you manage single families and duplexes, especially if there's no common area. Like if it's just kind of walk up garden apartments or condo type uh, arrangements, it's, it's pretty, basically just like a bunch of single families bolted together with the added benefit of you only have one roof, you only have one water service line and there's, you know, there's shared utilities there. So yeah, that's a, that's our, our we, that's an area of focus for us to grow because, you know, getting back to what I said earlier, I would rather have 20, 30, 40 units with a single client and even better at a single property than 20, 30, 40 single families with, with as many clients. So, yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you, it sounds like your profitability would go, your margins would go way up. What is the biggest uh, number of units property you manage now? Uh, so as of right now, I want to say, I think we have an 18 unit, um, in the past, we've had a 36 unit, a 48 unit, those types of range properties. Yeah. But part of the issue with property management is you experience churn. It's a big deal. Uh, you know, you're all excited when you win a new client, but then if they leave after two years, that's frustrating. And that's mostly driven by sales. Here in Columbus, the market is red, red hot and has been actually for years, but even more so here this year. And so, clients just almost can't help themselves but to sell the property. And when that happens, usually we're not able to retain management. You know, what a what a hard thing to calibrate your overhead around, right? Because then you don't want to be in a position where you have to lay off three employees or two employees or any employees, but you know, then you're you're stuck. They don't there's not enough for them to do. And I could see where that would be a real balancing act, especially if like you lose a couple big accounts within a month or so, that kind of thing. Yeah. We had a, I think in 2019 or maybe 2018, we lost 
I think three larger properties within six months or so. It was it was well over a hundred units total that we lost, and we were smaller then, um, and that was brutal. Uh, we were able to make it through. I think we laid off one employee that we actually didn't really. Uh, we felt like her performance wasn't great anyway. But yeah, that was tough. And that you know, again, you just got to be careful about having too many accounts with one client or too many units with one with one client for that reason. Usually you're not going to have, you know, a bunch of clients leave in quick succession, but it could happen. And Tough business. I mean, in a way, the only way to really mitigate against that. And by the way, uh, when I'm not doing this podcast, I'm in the advertising business and, and frankly have a similar dynamic where, you know, when we land a really big account, um, you know, it's an aphrodisiac. It's like, you know, it's yeah. like, oh my God, this is so great. And then, and then you have to staff up depending on the, you know, what, what the requirements are, you have to staff up. And then when you lose it, it just absolutely sucks. Yeah. What I was going to say is the only way to really mitigate against it is be like in this perpetual growth mode. So you've you've got a business development machine where you're yes. growing, growing, growing. And, you know, then that's uh, some people don't want to do that. Some people are happy to just kind of they don't want to give that amount of themselves or that sacrifice or that amount of risk, frankly, you know, to run that kind of business. And so I guess at any size, you know, in any dynamic, you've got different challenges. When you guys are talking to prospective clients, how do you differentiate yourself in the, in the conversation with what others do? Yeah, we do that in a few ways. One is I do mention uh, typically that, hey, this company was founded by two engineers. And if you've ever worked with an engineer or you know any engineers or you are an engineer, you know what that means for good or, or for bad. Uh, you're dealing with people who are analytical, unemotional, systems and process oriented. So if that resonates with you as a real estate investor, you're probably going to like working with us. The other thing, not to get too kind of down in the weeds here, technical, but one thing that makes us quite different from other property managers is that we don't charge what's called a leasing fee. So most property managers charge you first month's rent to lease up a property. And they call that a leasing fee. Some people call it a letting fee or a vacancy fee. And so that's great for the property manager. You know, They get this big payday for filling a unit, which to be fair is a lot of work. Unfortunately, it's it sets up a bad incentive where the property manager is actually getting rewarded for turnover. Right. And so if the property manager is having trouble filling a vacancy, the temptation might be, and I'm not saying people are doing this deliberately, but I think incentives are a powerful thing. The temptation might be, well, we need to fill this unit. The owner's unhappy. I need to get paid for all this work. And then pretty pretty soon, the next person with a security deposit who walks through the door, they go ahead and rent it to them without you know conducting the rigorous tenant screening and background checks that they really should be. So that's bad because a bad tenant is way worse than a vacancy, right. <laughs> it turns out. So because we don't charge that leasing fee, our incentives are aligned with the owners. We want to find great tenants and keep them in the property for as long as possible, uh, which in the long run means better performance and more returns for the real estate investor. So that's kind of our claim to fame. I always mention that on a sales call. Uh, although we did hire a sales guy about a year ago, he's been taking all those calls for me. And that's been a godsend. Uh, I was getting burned out on talking to clients. Highly recommended if you own a small business of any kind and, and you're still doing all the sales yourself, I, I would highly suggest you know, if you can start thinking about hiring a salesperson, because sooner or later you're going to get burned out on it and you're going to want some help with that process. 
Do you know, or if there's any way to gauge this, or even anecdotally, you have longer retention amongst tenants for your clients than benchmarked against the market? Or is there any way of even knowing that? Or do you have a sense of that one way or another? It's actually difficult to know what the benchmark is in our line of work. There's great data available for larger multifamily properties, and those tend to run right around 50% annual turnover. So the so if you take 100 tenants in an apartment building January 1st, you can expect about 50 of those are going to renew their lease for another year and 50 of them will not. The turnover rate for single family is much lower. It's I think it's probably around 30% on average. So ours tends to run, you know, about halfway between those around 35 to 40%. But it's hard to benchmark that against, say, another property manager locally because their mix of single family to multifamily is probably not identical to ours. I will say just intuitively, I I could tell you that ours is lower because of how that incentive structure is aligned. We really, really do not want a bad tenant in a property. Um, And bad tenants tend to have shorter stays. So by by being really rigorous with our tenant screening, uh, we end up with better stability in the tenant base for the properties that we manage. Makes a ton of sense with the screening process. I'm not even going to ask because I, I was on your website and it's stuff that I think is, um, it's stuff that's just common sense. Although that being said, maybe I'll change my mind. Is there anything do you think around screening that you do or do really well that others don't? Yeah, I do think so. Um, I think a lot of property managers their approach to tenant screening is is very subjective. And so when they get a rental application, they're looking over it and they're kind of, they have some guidelines they're going by, but I feel like a lot of their decision-making is too easily influenced by factors that should not be affecting their judgment. So let me try and make this a little bit more concrete. You know, at our company, we have an objective set of minimum standards that you have to meet to be approved to rent a home or apartment. Things like minimum credit score, minimum income, certain qualifications around your criminal background and your eviction history, right? And so when someone applies to live at one of our properties, if they meet those criteria, they're automatically approved. Um, There's no like, maybe this, maybe, maybe, maybe not. It's no, you either meet it or you don't, you're approved or you're not. And we try and take all the possible uh, gray area out of it. And we do that for a lot of reasons. For one, it keeps us well within the letter of the law in terms of fair housing. And for two, we think it's the right thing to do. And in fact, I'm a strong believer that the person making the approval decision really should never even meet the tenant or ideally not even know their name because those things have been shown, you know, to affect decision making, right? So we all have inherent biases, you know, that we may not even be conscious of and we can that can affect your decision making, right? So it's better if you just you give the person who's making the decision, here's person A, here's their credit score, here's their income, you know, here's their everything about them and they either meet the criteria or they don't and then they're approved or they're not. Uh, and so I think that's a much better way to do it. It protects our owners from liability. I think it results in better decision-making as well. And so is that the way you guys do it? Is the person ultimately, one making the decision has not met the, uh, the tenant? Correct. That is how we do it. Yep. That's very, very interesting. And to me, as somebody that's owned 
property. Sounds like about as many units as, as you do. Um, although I've sold them, uh, <laughs> on the one hand, it, yeah, obviously makes all the sense in the world. On the other hand, it feels very counterintuitive. And to me, it's like, I want to, I want to see the person. I want to look them right in the shooters, man. Right. Yeah. The ball. And, and I know that feeling is strong. And I get this response, you know, from most landlords and property owners, they're like, I want to know who's living in my property. I want to meet them, shake their hand, look them in the eye. I totally get that. You know, it's such a, your rental property, especially a lot of our clients, they move out of a house and they rent it out instead of like, you know, it's a lot different than picture someone who buys a duplex specifically as an investment and it's already occupied by tenants. But if you move out of a home that you've lived in and maybe raised your kids in, and now you're going to rent it out, letting someone live there as a tenant feels like a very personal almost invasive decision, right? These people are going to be cooking food in your kitchen. They're going to be sleeping in your old bedroom, right? So you feel very much like, oh man, I've got to, I got to see them. I got to meet them. But that is almost a dark path, I would say, toward, toward a very wide open fair housing <laughs> lawsuit, because, you know, you can already imagine how that can be very much open to, especially if you decline somebody, Say, say they meet all the qualifications on paper, but then you meet them and, and for whatever reason you decline them. Oh man, like I don't want to be anywhere near that because that's just a, you know, a big, big red flag and a fair housing lawsuit waiting to happen. Uh, but on the other hand, I totally understand that intuition, right? Of, Hey, I want to, I want to see how they conduct themselves. I want to see if they're respectful. I want to see that, you know, they're, they're, they're driving like a, you know, not a beater car, if they're moving into this nice neighborhood where I own a rental property, I get all that. I totally do. I don't know that I have a great, you know, retort for that, for that feeling, that intuition. I just, I'm a big data and systems guy. And, and, and I, when I sort of clean sheet analyze this problem, I feel like this is the way to go. Do, do you call, uh, I would imagine what questions can you ask to know that the reference isn't their, like, you know, their sister, you know, who, who's married and has a different last name or their cousin or a friend. And how can you vet references to, to determine whether or not they're really legitimate? So years ago, we stopped asking for personal references for exactly the reason you're describing. I mean, any of course, why would someone put down a reference that isn't going to be, you know, giving them glowing reviews? What we do check is their residential history. So we will talk to their current landlord if they're renting, and we'll also talk to their previous landlord. And we have a set of kind of standard questions that we ask them about that, uh, you know, like, what was the rent amount? Were they ever late? Were they evicted? Did they get their security deposit back? So we go through those standard uh, series of questions for their previous two landlords. Uh, and from that, we're able to get a reasonable picture of who they were as a tenant. Got it. Now, so I guess that the stupid part of the question was that I asked is you can see just from a, from software, from a record, you could see who their previous landlords were. So oh, I see. Yeah. I, for, I should address that. So it's actually not so clear. So when they list their current and previous landlord, it actually can be difficult to verify that information. And to your point, they list a phone number, you call, they say, oh yeah, I was their landlord <laughs> and it's their sister or whatever. Now there's a few things you can do. Uh, you can look up the county auditor records to see who the owner of record is for the properties that they've listed. And if it matches the name that they gave, you're probably in good shape. And the county records are supposed to also have a property manager listed. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So that's another kind of connection you can make there. 
so there's a little bit of detective work involved in because you're also sort of cross-referencing the addresses that they provide you. Now they're going to list their residential history, and you're going to be checking that, check, you know, checking the owner of record for those addresses. But you're also looking at like on their driver's license because we get an image of their driver's license. What is the address there? Does that match their pay stubs? We get their pay stubs. What is the address they they have there? Does that match? So there's a few things you can do to you know try and combat that fraud. Yeah, it's exactly what I was was asking because I remember one time for one of my uh, we have a cottage actually in back of my house that we even we, we live in today. And uh, when we first bought it, the girl living there she lives she was a single mom and gave us a reference and um, then and she was a, actually a great tenant and there was no problems. But within the first I don't know months or a year at some point. I met her boyfriend, who was also a very nice guy. And then once we started talking and some, kind of something came up where I realized, wait a minute, you're the guy I talked to who was for <laughs> reference. Wow. Yeah. So, they, yeah. so, so, she, so she, you know, she pulled the wool over my eyes, this and that. Again, she was a good tenant. There were no problems. But it was like, it was like ah, note to self, this is not a fail-safe uh, way of, you know, whatever. People could lie on that kind of stuff, just like anything else. So that, that's why I was curious to know. So you don't do percentage when you lease a property, you do a flat fee. What What is the, is the fee different for, you said it was per unit. So if it is 10, a 10 unit apartment building, 10 times what a single family is? It is. Yeah. So it's per unit basis uh, is the management fee. And it's right around a hundred dollars a month per unit. And then it just goes down the more units that you have with us. Got it. What are the average rents these days for properties that you're managing? What are, what are people for you know paying for single family houses in the suburbs where you're managing properties? So our overall average rent across every unit that we manage is about eleven fifty for single families. It's higher. So if you were to look at just the single families, I'd probably say the average is probably more like fifteen hundred, sixteen hundred, something like that. Interesting. And for a three to sixteen hundred square feet ish kind of thing. Yeah, for a three-two, uh, probably maybe even a little bit higher than that, just depending on the school district and you know the how new the home and the finishes are. Yeah, you know, for me, you and I talked before we started recording that how amazing it is for me to see what's gone on with Columbus in the last decade or two because it was so it was a, basically it was just the state capital and the home of uh, you know Ohio State and maybe a, maybe a nationwide was there way back in the day, but it was a small town. I mean, relatively speaking, and, and now all of a sudden it's like the fastest growing city in the Midwest. And you, like you said, I mean, the investment climate there in the last year has, is torrid for multifamily. <laughs> yeah. And I guess my question is, what are the economic drivers? I know it's Ohio State keeps mushrooming and I, I know the limited is grown, although retail is certainly not doing well. So what what is it making Columbus just such a hot spot? Um, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. I guess it's probably the diversity of employers we have here. We've got a bunch of different Fortune 500 companies, you know, from insurance to retail to we're, we're even starting to see some startup tech insurance type companies uh, like Root Insurance is headquartered here and they recently had a like a over one billion dollar valuation. You know, it's it's been a growing city for years now in terms of population growth. We're just continuing to hit milestones in terms of folks migrating to the city and it, I guess enjoying the 
low, relatively low cost of living. You know, it's funny. You talk to the leaders here and they're all concerned about a affordable housing crisis. <laughs> and I'm like, what affordable housing crisis? This is one of the most affordable cities to live in in the United States. Rents here are very low relative to pretty much every other city of the same size. I don't quite understand that, but I'm honestly not on the forefront of what is driving the economies of the city. We're very much sort of heads down property management over here. And actually, one thing that makes us a little different is we don't do brokerage, help our clients buy or sell homes or investment properties. Uh, That was a deliberate decision. Even though I'm a licensed real estate broker, and we very easily could do that. We really decided that staying focused on property management was going to be important for a lot of reasons. And we will leave the acquisition and disposition activities to others who are experts at that. And we will just focus on management. So I do have a lot of prospective clients ask me, you know, kind of questions similar to what you asked. Unfortunately, we just don't stay kind of at the forefront of like, even like people are like, oh, what neighborhoods are hot and stuff. I'm like, I, I don't know. We just, we just manage them. Just bring me the properties. We will, we'll do an absolute bang up job managing them. Uh, and maybe talk to a realtor about, you know, what's a great area to buy in and things like that. Honest answer, man. That goes back to the, to the uh, Eagle Scout thing, you know, a lot of people <laughs> try and BS the answer. I wouldn't, I know. I was not that quick on my feet. I would, I would be honest like you were. So do you know this, or do you have a sense of this, even again, if it's anecdotal and I, and I get that you're an engineer, so you're more about anal- analytics and, and more like, um, not one to, uh, equivocate, but with people moving in, like in migration, are these people moving from other parts of Ohio, smaller towns that maybe lost an industry or, or are they people coming from the East Coast or all over? Or do you even have a sense of that one way or another? I honestly don't know. Couldn't tell you. Got it. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Okay. Well, here's one. Um, and you know, maybe this answer changes by the day. I know for me, I'm always evaluating this kind of stuff, but how big do you think you want to get? Um, let's see. So we've had a goal for years to hit we we always thought it would be interesting to to control and manage one percent of all the rental units in the central Ohio area. I've always felt like that would be an inch, a cool milestone. Turns out that's around 1,300 units. And so that is kind of what we're shooting for. Like you mentioned, we're pretty much at 500. So we're, I guess, almost halfway there uh, in terms of that. So I would like to see that. I think once we hit 1%, we're going to be, it sounds ridiculous to say, but we're going to be near market penetration just because so many of the rental units here are owned and managed by real estate development companies. And so they they will just never hire a third-party manager. A lot of them are self-managed. So folks like maybe yourself who own and, and manage directly have no interest or need for hiring a property manager. So it's it's actually kind of amazing how few rental units are third-party managed relative to the total number, which is why if we could capture 1%, I feel like that would really be something. Uh, I think it speaks to the fragmentation of the industry, not only for the reasons I just said, but there's just a lot of property managers, right? So there's dozens and dozens and dozens of folks who, if you called them and said, would you manage my single family rental? They would say yes. Now, a lot of those people are just one-off realtors who are managing a few a few units, mostly for clients of theirs. Everything up to, you know, there's companies even larger than ours uh, doing third-party management. So 
it's a very fragmented industry. Um, there, there has been consolidation in recent years that's continuing. Uh, so it'll be kind of interesting to see how that plays out. Well, I, I guess it's the kind of business that, you know, you could start it with, with nothing. There's no barrier to entry. Um, and so therefore that lends itself to fragmentations just because anybody could get, anybody could hang a shingle. And like you said, manage three properties. Well, it, in certain states, that is true. In Ohio and a lot of states, you actually do have to be a licensed real estate broker or you need to be a licensed real estate agent working under the supervision. Now, that's not a huge barrier to your point. I mean, basically any any realtor and, and we all know there's, I think I heard a statistic the other day that there's more realtors in the United States than there are homes for sale. Than there are people. So, yeah. So, you know, not a huge barrier to be sure, but there is something there. Um, in that way, it's interesting because there's not that many fiduciary professions uh, where you're acting on behalf of another and legally bound to act in their best interest. You know, you can think about lawyer, accountant, uh, financial advisor, doctor. You know, there's there's a limited number of fiduciary uh, professions. Property management, relative to those I just listed off, is way down the list in terms of status and trustworthiness by the general public. And I believe we need a lot more regulation and licensing activity required by the states to sort of raise property management and be and make it a much more professionalized type of activity, which I think would benefit everybody. It would benefit consumers who would be dealing with folks who aren't... I mean, do you really want someone who's doing it as a part-time job to be managing your duplex? I think you want someone who lives and breathes and that's all they do and their whole income relies on it, I think that's actually going to be better for you as a client. So, yeah. The last question I have is uh, maybe you have a you know, window into this or maybe not. I was going to say it would apply to people buying you know more than three or four unit buildings per se, but it doesn't have to. It could be people buying houses. What mistakes do you see investors making in terms of you know what they acquire? Overpaying is definitely the biggest. Just, you know, there's this feeling that you have to do deals, right? I mean, if you're a real estate investor, you call yourself a real estate investor, you want to get started in real estate investing, you feel like, okay, well, that means I have to buy a property or two. Um, And so the temptation is to find the best property that's currently available on the market. And then you sort of feel like, oh, well, I got a good deal. Well, actually, no, <laughs> that, that doesn't follow. It could be that none of properties that are currently available for sale are at a reasonable price. A reasonable price, I mean, a price you could pay given the market rents and the expenses that are going to be associated with that property, such that you're going to be at the very least break even moving forward. I see a lot of people paying paying for properties, at least in central Ohio here. I just don't know how they're doing it. I don't think they're, I don't think it's sustainable. Um, I literally don't think that the income is going to cover the expenses on a long-term basis. Now, of course, there's going to be months or even years where they get lucky and there's no major repairs and there's no major turnover uh, and nothing goes wrong. And yeah, they make a little money. But if you look at like the amortized cost of the capital improvements and the tenant turnover, the debt service and everything else, I just I see a, a lot of people who are just taking risks with you know the properties that they're buying. They're either banking on appreciation of the property or they're banking on rent growth in the future or they're banking on on rates continuing to drop and 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 taking advantage of that cap rate compression. And none of those things is a given. Uh, I you know I 
I'm quote old enough that I lived through the 2008, you know, recession and I saw what happened to home values and property values during that time. And a lot of people, for a lot of people, a lot of the old timer real estate investors, that was a career ending period. Like they were wiped out. And based on what I see people doing today, they are as vulnerable to that as as those people were back in 2007. And to be fair, a lot of these people ha- didn't live through that. A lot of these folks are way younger than me. Uh, I hear so many people getting on podcasts and, and people that I talk to are like, oh yeah, I've been buying property since 2016. And the way they say it is they, they feel like they've really got something there. And it's like, buddy, that's, you know, that's not a long time in in terms of market cycles. So I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm too cynical about these things, but that is my perspective. I agree with you about 600 trillion percent. <laughs> but uh, you know, and I, but I didn't know what the answer to your question would be about mistakes investors make. I'm just sitting here listening and just kind of nodding my head. I'm like, yeah, yeah I, I totally understand that. And um, fortunately for me, I have a negative outlook on life. And so I just assume the worst is going to happen every time. And so I, I, I get it. You, you got to buy something just so, frankly, just inexpensive. You have to buy something so cheap that it just, you're so mitigated against any conceivable, less than ideal thing that could happen, right? And so, you know, deep recession, rent contraction, uh, unanticipated CapEx, interest rates rising more than one would have anticipated. Regulatory changes like rent control, things like that even. Well, you know, you know, I, I live in the Bay Area and I, you know, I have <laughs> operated my properties in San Francisco. So absolutely. I mean, a yeah. number of things. And so, you know, things can and do go wrong, you know, if you're well enough capitalized, you know, in other words, if you just have enough money that you could ride those things out. Because I, I do think in a market like Columbus, I mean, if you believe in, in a healthy future for this this country and that we just don't become a socialist uh you know, outposts in the next 10 or 20 years, which is a whole other conversation. But if you don't think that that's going to happen and that we're going to have, we will continue for the foreseeable to the future to have at least some semblance of, of the, uh, you know, the capitalistic democracy that we've had, I think it stands to reason that there, yes, there will be appreciation over time. And when I say over time, you know, again, 10, 15, even 20 years, you know, yeah. will, will a house in Columbus that's selling for 175 to 225 today be worth double that in 20 years i think that there's a reasonable chance that that will certainly be the case but i tend to agree yeah um, well peter this has been a wonderful wonderful conversation and uh, how would one uh, get a hold of you um, if one is still listening to our conversation and in need of your services or or lonely and just needs to have somebody to talk to <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me there, twitter.com slash P.S. Uh, you can also go to my website, peterloman.com, and you can find there links to pretty much everything I do. I've got a podcast of my own called Owner Occupied, where we talk about small business and property management stuff. Uh, and I also, I post, uh, I, I put blog posts up there, not specific to like, here's how you change a lock on a rental property, but more like talking about what's happening in the property management industry as a whole. So for example, I just posted a one that got some traction about a list of VC backed property management companies and sort of how that's been going. Uh, so yeah, love to hear from folks. 
joined the conversation and uh, hopefully got some value out of this conversation as well. Fantastic. Well, I, I got value out of our conversation. And um, look, I mean, hey, to have 500 units under your belt and uh, you and your partner, and uh, I bet you'll get to 1,300 units. So uh, fantastic. I, I really appreciate it. And you're clearly a pro. Thanks, Seb. Enjoy this, Roger. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. Talk to you soon. Bye.